This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host Rod Davis and this is episode 47 Uh, and this week we are in conversation with Paul Ramsbottom. Now Paul is the chief executive of the Wolfson Foundation, a big grant maker here in the UK Um, And we sat down to have a chat about the role of foundations and kind of more broadly about what's going on in the landscape around uh, philanthropy at the moment. Um, So we had a good wide ranging chat, uh, kind of started off talking about some pretty big picture questions about the role of philanthropy within society um, and kind of within that the specific role of endowed philanthropy and foundations. Um, we talked about the kind of particular strength that that gives in terms of longevity and perhaps sitting outside of political and market cycles and also the flip side that that brings in terms of people raising questions about the dead hand of the donor and that kind of thing. Um, we talked uh, more broadly about history because one of the things the Wolfson Foundation does is support uh, the Wolfson Prize, uh, which is a sort of big prize for uh, accessible history writing uh, here in the UK. Uh, so I talked to Paul about you know how they viewed the the value of historical insight and why they supported that. Um, we talked about some trends in found, in the foundation world, like the trend towards spend down philanthropy and what that might mean in terms of that question of the value that longevity brings. Um, we talked about transparency. Paul's got some interesting thoughts on kind of what transparency means for foundations, what's driving it, why the narrative around transparency might need to be challenged in, in some cases. Um, we also talked, as is always the case if you put any two people interested in foundations or philanthropy in the room, about power dynamics, so about how we kind of get effective transfers of power as well as assets, how we empower communities and, and recipient organisations to have more say over how foundation resources are spent. Um, we talked about the question of whether the way in which money is made affects the legitimacy of how it's given away and whether you can ever do do good with bad money, um, touching particularly on the kind of controversy around the, the Sackler family at the moment. Um, and then we also talked about the kind of wider question of how foundations and other charitable organisations use and manage their own money and kind of particularly around investments. So without further ado, let's uh, go into the, the conversation. Um, I will be back at the end for the, the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up, um, but let's get on with it. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm here with Paul Ramsbottom. Hi, Paul. Hi, Rodri. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So Paul is uh, Chief Executive of the Wolfson Foundation, um, which probably needs no more explanation, but maybe the best starting point before we launch into what will, you know, based on the uh, preparatory work, be a pretty broad conversation about all sorts of things to do with philanthropy. Just give a bit of background about you and your role and kind of how you come to these issues. Thanks, Rodri. Uh, well, as you say, I'm Chief Executive of the Wolfson Foundation, which is a reasonably large grant maker focused particularly on education and research with six decades of history behind it. Um, I also take a a wider issue in a a wider interest in issues to do with philanthropy, I guess, particularly as they kind of connect to foundations. And I chair the national chief executive uh, groups, the group for, for the larger foundations. Great. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, we, I kind of sent some notes over before, before we discussed um, uh, you coming on the podcast, and there were all kinds of things. And I mean, maybe a, a sort of starting point is a very broad question um, about that role of foundations. What, what do you think is the kind of unique selling point of a foundation as a, as a philanthropic vehicle, a kind of structure that has some endowed money behind it, rather than just doing things on a more ad hoc or kind of direct basis? Yeah, I think at its best, the foundation can be seen as, in, in, in a way, the highest form of philanthropy. Um, and I, I say that because there's something very intentional about setting up 
uh, a fund, uh, there is a degree of transparency, um, particularly if uh, it's a it's a charitable foundation, as as, as I guess that you know the standard is in the UK. There's a degree of collective decision making uh, if you have to have a board uh, of, of of trustees. I think there is also something about a long term horizon um, that an endowment suggests, even if you're spending out, that you're there for a reasonable length of time, and therefore you're thinking about issues, if not intergenerationally, at least over a reasonable chunk of time. And I think all of and my argument would be that all of those are strengths, and all of them tend to lead to a more thoughtful and strategic philanthropy. Um, now, of course, I am well aware that there are less good practices as well as very good practices within the foundation space. But I think that, in a nutshell, to my mind, is why um, foundations could be seen as 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 a, one of the highest expressions of philanthropy in society. On just to pick up on a, on a couple of those, because I think you've identified, you know, what I would definitely see as some of the the key features there about certainly that that sort of long term horizon. Um, you know, one of the strong arguments I think in favour of endowed philanthropy is precisely that it can kind of take a step back from short term market and political cycles and stick with issues for the for the longer term. On on that, you mentioned there about um, the idea of spend down foundations. So this is sort of foundations that, from the outset, have a have a kind of limited lifespan by design. Do, it, it, quite a few people I've I've seen sort of identify that there is an increasing trend towards that model, particularly in the US. Do you do you think that kind of potentially brings any challenges in terms of making the most of that long term? horizon because it, it seems to me there's kind of you know additional pressures then to get the money out of the door and seek solutions that have kind of definable outcomes within a shorter space of time and maybe that's missing some of what makes endowed philanthropy really unique i i, I agree um and i think i think it is interesting there is a trend i mean and i guess my sense is the trend is for two reasons there was certainly in the uk quite um a, a little group of foundations who were spending out particularly after the 2008 financial crash. And I think partly because their finances had taken a bit of a hit. But then secondly, there is also a set of arguments which say that the challenges that we face in uh, 2019 are unprecedented, perhaps particularly in an environmental sense. And they're so burning that to think intergenerationally um, is, is, is the wrong way to think. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in a position of wanting to criticise organisations that, that that are spending down. Where I do take issue is with commentators who argue that that should be the default mode, because I think there is something quite powerful about stepping outside of an electoral cycle, stepping out of a very short time frame and sticking with an issue uh, for a very long period of time. So, for example, like a research funder, such as Wolfson, we've been funding universities uh, since the 1950s, and we've been able to to fund consistently and think through issues over that very long period of time. And it's hard to think actually of any other um, source of funding that has that longevity and that sense of perspective. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, there are often sound arguments for spend out foundations i would worry i think if it became the default mode or indeed if there was any sense of wanting to pressure foundations into doing that yeah absolutely um right i'm gonna have to be careful here because there's all sorts of things immediately that i want to pick up on <laughs> to make sure i keep keep track of myself one one thing is you you sort of mentioned there about um something like research funding being a particular strength that that endowed models of philanthropy and foundations might have and i know that's something that you fund a lot of uh, at wolfson um and it's certainly you know i think that's really interesting because that idea that you can fund you know very far upstream does seem particularly problematic for the public sector or for um, philanthropic organizations that need to rely more on fundraising do do you find that the fact that you don't really need to go out and kind of engage the the great british public um, at the moment to convince them of things gives you more latitude to fund things that are perhaps slightly more speculative or kind of you know where the results won't be felt directly for quite a long time 
I'm sure that's right. Um, and, you know, it's the flip side of the criticism that is sometimes thrown at foundations, that they are, in some senses, unaccountable. And we can come back to that. The, the positive side is that you can plug away at unpopular or long-term issues. And it is, you know, it's interesting looking at the history of foundations in, in the UK to see the extent to which they have been involved in things which it's very difficult to rattle a tin for on a street corner. And, and, and from a Wolfson perspective, thinking perhaps particularly about research, I think we probably have to be less worried about short term impact than that some other funders do. And so we can we can think about funding fundamental or discovery research, knowing that actually if you back really interesting, brilliant ideas, there will be some really fascinating outcomes. But it might be 10 years time, it might be 20 years time. You know, the funding of laser technology in the 1960s was seen as very speculative. Um, and it wasn't until the 1980s uh, that it transformed the music industry. And it wasn't until the late 1980s that it transformed eye surgery. Um, and, and, and I think that long term perspective is an advantage. I agree. I think there's something really fascinating there as well about you, that example there of, um, of laser technology and, and the way in which it's, we've sort of subsequently been able to see the benefits makes me think that those, those examples work extremely well with the benefit of hindsight. The, the challenge is in the kind of here and now, how to distinguish possibly between the, those bits of philanthropic funding that, that are kind of justifiable long-term bets or big bets and those where you might think actually we need to rein in freedom a little bit and I'm thinking here there's quite a lot of controversy in the US about um, Silicon Valley donors increasingly focus on things like space exploration and some people saying well that's all well and good but they make an enormous amount of money and there are a lot of problems in the world as it is now do you do you think somewhere between sufficient freedom to innovate and, and to engage in discovery and taking it so far that it becomes detached from from kind of uh, present day reality we need other mechanisms of accountability to kind of rein in philanthropy a bit yeah I, I, and i think this goes to a, the re, uh, the heart of what i think is is a really interesting uh, current debate about philanthropy and that is the extent to which philanthropy should be seen as part of a wider prism of the correct distribution of wealth in society um, and therefore um, you know the, the current debates that are raging often tie it into kind of tax rebates and they also tie it into this sense that actually philanthropy should be about social justice issues I have to say in the UK, I'm less concerned than in the US. I mean, if you've set up a charitable foundation in the UK, you have to work within a framework where everything that you do fulfills a charitable purpose and the charitable purpose is set down in UK law um, and is, is monitored, um, however loosely, by the Charity Commission. Um, and therefore, while a lot of foundations quite rightly and quite reasonably will be right there at the sharp end in terms of the most pressing issues of social justice. I think there is scope for some philanthropy to either think about things in a slightly, I wouldn't use the word detached, but a slightly more long-term, even speculative sense. And I do also think that there is a role for philanthropy to have to, to be funding the nice to have in society. Um, you know, you, historically, um, Roger, you might think about things like the great municipal parks that were set up by philanthropists, often in kind of late Victorian period. Uh, now, I mean, if you look at that, you might say that, that that was actually, you know, an incredible luxury at a time of serious social injustice. And you could say the same about, let's say, the funding of the arts or the cultural world in 2019, when we still have homelessness and a raft of other social issues. But I think, it, to my mind, it, it does slightly miss the point that philanthropy isn't fundamentally about redistribution of wealth in society. It's subtler than that. And therefore, I think there is a role for philanthropy absolutely 
to be there at the sharp edge of social justice issues. But the role of philanthropy in society is wider and subtler and richer than that. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And I think certainly on that questionnaire about you know inequality, I think that I can't remember who it was made this point somewhere where, where I was um, at a presentation, but that um, certainly when it comes to criticism of something like philanthropic funding for the arts, there's a strong argument that actually you know inequality of of wealth is is one dimension but there's other things like inequality of opportunity or aspiration and actually in a lot of ways you know for many people arts will be the thing that that gives them purpose in life or or kind of makes life worth living so actually you know there's there's a very strong argument that 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 is a perfectly reasonable thing to fund through philanthropy absolutely and i mean going back to my victorian parks example um in a sense you know access to green spaces falls exactly into that category as well. And I would argue, actually, you know, research, even of a fundamental nature, has an impact on society. There is a social justice element. It's just slightly less sharply focused, um, perhaps, than being right there at the kind of cutting edge of, a, of an issue that is on everybody's minds at that particular moment. Yeah, and and a theme I'm sure we'll come back to um, you know over the course of this conversation about the value of a historical perspective on on that public parks and particularly sort of national parks. I, I read a fascinating history of the the National Trust quite recently, and and I hadn't realised the extent to which that tension between the idea of preservation of of green space uh, on the basis that it had a sort of social good and gave people from the working class the opportunity to to have a better quality of life and a more sort of small-c conservative view that it was actually about preservation of those those things for themselves and not about access has been has been there since the outset. So, you know, <laughs> these sorts of debates, uh, as you know, as we often find, aren't very new. Uh, I agree. I agree. And I think, that, um, uh, without wanting to overly flatter you, I think one of the interesting things I find about your analysis, Roderick, is that you always try and place it in a historic context. We do sometimes assume that whatever issue bursts onto the scene in terms of the charitable sector or philanthropy, that it's just emerged. But but actually that that sense of perspective and history um, I think is you know is very helpful in framing all of these discussions. And on that note, actually, one of, one of the things, obviously, that the Wolfson Foundation is probably best known for amongst the, the wider public is um, your support for the Wolfson Prize for writing uh, about history and sort of uh, nonfiction, which I think is an annual prize. What's in the context of your wider charitable mission? What's what's the sort of rationale or theory of change behind supporting that? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's something that we, um, you know, that, that sits really as something rather different to everything else that we do. And, and it is essentially um, uh, two or threefold, Rodri. I mean, the first is to emphasise and celebrate the importance of history and history writing to a healthy society, healthy, healthy civic society. Um, secondly, it's through the publicity that we try and generate through the prize to get people debating and thinking about history and to take history to uh, as wide an audience um, as possible. And, and, and thirdly, I guess, and it ties into the other two points, is, 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 is to try as far as possible to take really high quality, incisive, research-driven history outside of academia uh, and get it into the hands of people who want a good book to take onto the beach, not just as an end in itself, but to really try and try and spark debate about issues in society. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's relatively cheap if you think about it in terms of funding for, let's say, a research institute. But actually, I think the money actually has, has quite a significant impact. I mean, the prize money for the, for the, the winner is 40,000 and then um, it's shortlisted also gets gets funding. And if you think about the impact that you can have for that type of money, um, it can be quite profound, actually. Um, so it's a very different mode of funding. Um, and I mean, maybe from the outside, it could seem a little bit like a luxury, but there's some very careful thinking that lies behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as you say, kind of in terms of value for money and going back to what we were saying there about the, you know, the arguments for 
for thinking uh, about the role of philanthropy in broader terms. It, it's, it seems like it stacks up extremely well. Um, I just want to come back to, to something you, you touched on um, right at the start when you were outlining um, your, your uh, thoughts on the kind of role and, and unique position of foundations. You mentioned transparency. Um, and I know this is something that you kind of wrote about recently and you've had some thoughts about the the way in which the debate about transparency, particularly uh, relating to foundations, is sometimes presented a bit too black and white. And actually, you've kind of made a case that uh demanding too much uh transparency from from foundations or an unreasonable level might have unintended consequences do you want do you want to say a bit about that yeah thank you uh, rodri and um, uh, the the piece that you allude to um it was a kind of thought piece that sprung out from a, a little working group that i'm chairing on behalf of the association of charitable foundations which is looking at, at transparency and i think there's, there's a real irony or, or tension here because um, I would argue that for an organisation like Wolfson or indeed for any reasonable scale foundation, being as transparent, as open as you possibly can about what you're doing, why you're doing it, the principles that lie beneath what you're doing is actually really key to fulfilling your charitable purpose. It's key to actually making you a good and well-run organization and so for example at Wolfson you know we publish as 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 as, as it's becoming actually the norm for large foundations through 360 uh, giving um, I make myself available as chief executive through social media to anybody who wants to fire um, a tweet at me I suppose the tension comes when uh, foundations are placed under too great a scrutiny and there is an attempt to force an enhanced level of transparency on them uh, over and above what would be the standard for any charity through charitable reporting uh, to the Charity Commission. Because I think what we have to recognise is that if you're a high net worth individual in British society, you've got a range of ways of uh, giving money away, um, all of which come with with a tax break. And so the danger is that by forcing very high levels of transparency on individuals or families setting up foundations, that in a sense, we simply force them underground. They either continue to give as individuals or they give through donor advice funds and therefore perversely uh, the arguments in favour of greater transparency mean that fewer foundations are set up and a higher proportion of philanthropy in the UK is out of sight of the public or out of sight of fundraisers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think this whole question about transparency is a lot more complicated than it's sometimes presented. I think there's a sort of assumption that you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And in many cases, you know, transparency is an, is an admirable goal, but I think there are some circumstances in which you need to be clear about what you're having transparency about and why. And also to be able to make a case that in some, you know, in some circumstances, anonymity for the, the funder or the, the original donor is actually perfectly justifiable. I mean, you know, going back to history again, there's plenty, plenty of religious traditions in giving which actively stipulate that the best form of giving is anonymous giving that's right the sort of the left hand not knowing what the right hand does yeah um, ab absolutely and and you know that's in the context where there is quite a lot of criticism at the moment about um uh philanthropy and usually that's tied into some to to some criticism about the way in which philanthropists get a lot of recognition for their giving and the sort of uh caricature of you know name plaque philanthropy and people getting their their names on you know wings of hospitals or libraries it seems odd because often the same people will then criticise those philanthropists for not being transparent enough, whereas actually they might be trying to keep their name out of the limelight, uh, specifically you know to try and have some more humility about their giving. So I think it can be a lot more complicated than people think. It is. It is very nuanced. And I am conscious, actually, that, that in making the arguments for transparency, it's in some ways easier to do that with an institution that is 60 plus years old. Um, and although the family is still involved, um, 
it's slightly less personalized uh, giving than it might have been in the first generation. Um, and you're right. I mean, there are there are honorable reasons for philanthropists and philanthropic organizations to want to keep a low profile. Um, I guess I do come back to the sense, though, that just being quite open about what you want to do, why you want to do it, how you're going about it and publishing your data in a format that's quite accessible um, in and of itself seems to me to be the hallmark of a foundation that is you know, reasonably well run. Um, uh, and, and, you know, th that can be in place without great fanfare and great trumpets. Um, so, so there is, there is somewhere, um, a healthy balance. Um, but, but I guess one of the fundamental concerns that I was teasing out in that article is for whatever reason, and I don't know whether you agree with me here, Rodri, um, there are relatively few large-scale foundations being set up in the UK at the moment. It's not, that's not an international trend, but it's very much a trend, I would argue, in the UK. And I think in all of the scrutiny of foundations and the debates about their role in society, I do worry that sometimes we miss the fact that actually they're a waning, they're not a waning force in that, you know, the long-established foundations are still quite prominent. I do worry about the the fact that's relatively new few newcomers into the into the space yeah i, I think i i would agree um and this i mean it goes to a, a sort of broader point i think about the the current context in which there are much more widespread criticisms and critiques of philanthropy particularly coming from from the u.s many of which i think are very important uh, you know about its role in relation to inequality and democracy and uh, and some of the challenges that brings. But I, I do think one of the dangers um, we have in the UK is that we just sort of import those criticisms wholesale without questioning the degree to which the context is different. Um, I think that applies to, you know, to foundations, because as, as you've already said, you know, the situation here is very different. We've got a, a standalone uh, charitable regulator that monitors those, whereas in the UK, in the US, it's all done via the IRS and it's sort of solely a, a taxation thing. Um, you know, to be honest, the, the culture of major donor giving over here and foundation giving isn't the same as the US anyway. So in a way, we might like to get to the point where we have the same sort of scale of giving before we start hand-wringing too much about about the issues. You know, I, I'm not trying to to kind of undermine the, the value of those those criticisms that we should take on board, but I do think we need to be careful that they don't put a dampener on attempts to build a wider culture of giving in this country before we've even really started properly i i, I agree i agree entirely um and they're that you know I, I, by and large i think scrutiny of foundations is a good thing and debate is, is a good thing i do worry that you have very intelligent analysis of the american scene that is then transferred kind of lock stock and barrel across the Atlantic I mean Rob Wright's interesting book is an example of that debates about mandatory payout for foundations is another example where I think what makes perfect sense in a US context just doesn't transfer across the Atlantic um, so I, I, I agree I agree but I, perhaps that is simply an argument for more and better homegrown analysis of UK philanthropy rather than looking across the at the the Atlantic and trying to kind of borrow frameworks from from uh, commentators and writers in the states yeah I, I would agree I think you know in the same way that I've I've had a bee in my bonnet for, for a long time about sort of lazy comparison positive comparisons between the UK and the US where people just sort of say why can't we have a culture of philanthropy like the US? Oh, it's because they don't have a welfare state and all these sorts of things. And actually, once you strip out religious giving and take into account the role of higher education and you know uh, self valuation of goods to charity shops and thing you know things like that, the situation is much less uh, kind of stark than it might otherwise look. But I think the same thing goes for criticism. I think that you need to be careful to take the relevant portions of that criticism on board and apply them over here, but not just apply them you know without kind of um reference to context which i do i do worry is is kind of happening in some uh, in some cases 
I agree. I agree um, entirely. Mm. Um, one thing I, I wanted to pick up on there, because you, you mentioned, you know, that Wolfson has been around for 60 plus years now, I think, as a as a as as an endowed uh, foundation. I'm, I'm really interested in that question where there is um, a, a kind of single donor that has established an institution and they or, you know, in this case, their family are still involved. What that means in terms of the sort of power dynamics between you know the family and the founders and the people charged with uh kind of professionally distributing the money and also what mechanisms there are for for kind of ensuring that the purpose of the institution and the way it operates keeps pace with the times because i know that that is one of the longest standing criticisms of endowed approaches to philanthropy is is that sort of dead hand of the donor thing where wishes are set in stone at one point in time and then you know, uh, subsequently come to look a bit uh, archaic or outdated. Yeah, and it's a very intricate and very interesting set of, of of issues. But I mean, just to take that first point, um, I, I think there is a great danger for organisations that are attempting to look at issues intergenerationally if they simply stick with um, what they assume would have been the founder's wishes should he or she still be around and that seems to me a very difficult game to play in any case i, I mean just just in terms of the, the organization that i know most most about wilson foundation I think one of the wisdom uh, what one of the wise things that, that, that the founders did was to set up a framework that was very broad um and certainly that would be my advice for anybody setting up a foundation that 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 you don't tie the hands of your successors you might want to set out a set of issues, but you certainly don't want to be too prescriptive. I think uh, another point to unpick in terms of your interesting question, Rodri, is then how that transfer takes place across generations within a family or within a kind of corporate structure. And I think there's a whole raft of quite interesting issues there. And then and then the other point, which again I think is is quite interesting, is that balance between a professional team and a board, which in a sense, in a foundation where you've got either a corporate or a family involved, perhaps becomes a little bit more complicated to, to, to navigate. Um, uh, I mean, I have, thankfully not the case at, at Wolfson, um, but I have seen foundations where there has sometimes been a tension between a kind of professional staff who want to be kind of thinking through the issues of the day and being very intentional and thoughtful and strategic and a board who perhaps are more deferential to the wishes of a founder or who are, are, are perhaps more interested in, in, in networks of influence. Um, I mean, I've always felt very blessed here in having uh, a, a dynamic which to my mind from the inside works works very well indeed but these are difficult issues and we both know of examples where you know that can cause challenges and on on that topic about um trying to be as sort of responsive as possible to the you know, needs in in society as as they are now one of the one of the interesting trends that, that I've um, seen lots of people talking about is uh, around things like participatory grant making. Um, and obviously, that's partly about making philanthropy more responsive, but it's also about effecting a shift of power as well as as money. Is that is that something that Wilson has kind of um, thought about? Or, or is it or do you kind of have other ways within your model of, of, of kind of holding yourself to account uh, on those grounds? I think it's one of the really interesting areas in in, in, in modern grant making, you know, how do you get lived experience and that color and life? Uh, how can you move it away from being a paternalistic top down? We know what's best. We're going to distribute money. I, I mean, I, I guess, Rodri, within kind of research funding, it does feel slightly different um, in that the participatory nature is having expert panels and expert reviewers who are authoritative on the subject, you know, whether it's, you know, laser technology or whatever. But um, let me just give you an example, which we've been kind of grappling with a little bit. We've launched um, 
at the end of last year, a £10 million research challenge on mental health research. It's a big area. And so we're pulling together an international um, panel uh, to help us judge that. So um, international experts from outside of the UK. But they are picked not because of their lived experience of mental health, but because they're extremely knowledgeable and known to be world experts on the intricacies of the research. And so it's been quite an interesting question to us then, to what extent should we get people involved who have direct experience of mental health? And and I guess the way in which we've got round that so far is by trying to work quite closely with the leading mental health charities. But the interesting set of issues for us there are fundamentally the decisions will be about quality of research. So very technical set of issues. On the other hand, we don't want those issues to become completely divorced from the end beneficiary. Um, so, so the, 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 you know, they are very interesting, but somewhat difficult issues to navigate. I guess if you're dealing with a social justice issue, um, then there are a different set of issues to navigate, no less or more difficult. And, and I think there are some, some quite interesting practices um, out there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think taking what you were saying there about the research context in, into a sort of broader social justice or kind of social issue context, I, I often think there is a really interesting question and perhaps challenge to that that sort of assertion that you know people or communities know for themselves the best solutions to their own problems i think you know in a lot of cases they do and there is you know a lot more benefit to be got from empowering people to to sort of take action on those but but i think we do also need to be careful not to assume that just giving people responsibility for solving their own problems is always the right um, response because you know sometimes you may not give them the appropriate levers to actually make the changes that they need and in some cases you know people don't actually act in their own best interest and I'm thinking of things there like public health issues actually you know if you if you ask people to just sort of take responsibility for solving those things themselves history sort of shows that that's not always that successful and actually you know more governmental mechanisms of legislation or regulation are sometimes necessary to kind of force people's hand so so i think again it's you know one of those things that's a lot more complex it it is nuanced but i think the direction of travel is one to be welcomed which is away from a kind of paternalistic approach that you know sat around the table in central london a group of people who are selected uh, to sit on a board or a panel know what is best for a particular community or a particular region or a particular issue. Um, and I, I, I'm, while you're quite right, the issues are nuanced, I think the, the trend and the direction of travel, particularly for the major funders, which is to really grapple with this, how can our decision-making have integrity if we're not embedded in and listening to uh, communities who are going to be the end beneficiaries of this. I think that that is a welcome direction of travel. And, and I think it probably was an imbalance that, that, that did need to be, to be addressed. Um, I think, as I say before, uh, the, cha- the challenge is in some ways greater when you're thinking about research um, or, 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 or to give the example that, that you gave public health issues. Yeah, and, and I absolutely would agree. I mean, to some extent, I just like being a contrarian rather than actually thinking that there's anything problematic with empowering people and communities. Um, <laughs> but one of um, it brings me on to something else I wanted to ask you about as well, actually, which fits quite neatly in, which is is um, one of the ways in which people in the foundation and sort of grant-making world seem to be trying to affect that shift of power is to focus more on place as a way of, of defining... Um, how money is is kind of distributed and and i guess getting additional benefits like being able to uh focus on individuals and their cross-cutting needs rather than siloing everything up by sort of traditional uh cause areas is is that sort of you know a trend that you're seeing is it something you're interested in have you experimented with it yeah it's a really interesting uh trend 
um, you know, and I, 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 I think it ties in as well with a trend for, for UK funders not just to be thinking about London and the South East. Um, and, and I mean, just this last week, uh, a really fascinating initiative from six major foundations to advertise uh, a director of collaboration who is going to be working across those six funders, thinking particularly about place-based uh, funding. Um, I, I mean, my sense is that jury is still out slightly in terms of place-based funding. Um, and again, I guess it, it probably works best for organizations that are very sharply focused on social issues and social justice issues, knowing that siloing addiction from homelessness, from mental health is probably not terribly helpful. And therefore you're probably best to approach it from grassroots up and holistically looking at individuals and communities and trying to think about how, you know, the civic society and philanthropy can work, not in kind of individual program strands, but with communities and individuals and families to, to really kind of, um, you know, lift, lift the provision, if you like. Again, I mean, for an education and research funder like Wolfson, the, 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 the way in which we think about that, I guess, is, is, is more about kind of regional spread and so on rather than place-based uh, funding. I think it's probably fair to say, Rodri. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Um, I'm just uh, aware that we're we're sort of getting uh, in danger of running long, and there's a couple of things I, I really would like to ask you about. So I'm just going to to um, sort of uh, move around a little bit. One one is coming back to a thing that you've mentioned a few times that um, Wolfson uh, is sort of primarily a, a research funder, so it sort of sits at that kind of upstream um, uh, place in terms of kind of addressing uh, issues. Um, one of the, the questions I had is around how you measure impact or success, which is obviously a quite a vexed question in the in the philanthropy and foundation world. But but particularly when you are funding things at that stage and with a kind of much longer term horizon, do you find that ever sort of puts you in tension with the demand for more immediate measures of how something is having an impact in the real world? And, and how do you kind of answer that? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, it's the you know, it's the fundamental question in a way, isn't it? How, how do we actually know that we are having any impact at all? And, and for Wolfson, this is exacerbated by the fact that to a considerable extent, we're infrastructure funders. So we have an interesting set of challenges because we're funding a building or a bit of kit. There's research going on in that building. The research has long-term horizons. How do we unpick what the impact of that building and that research is. So there are a number of ways that you can do it and we've put a framework in place um, and, and, and you know, that there are ways in which you can measure this through things like research publications and so on. Um, the short answer is that it's very difficult to do. The longer answer is that we've created a framework where every applicant talks about the measures that they themselves are gonna put into place. The other thing is the time span that you're talking about, because actually a lot of the research that we're funding, the impact of it, even if successful, is across a generation, which I guess brings us back to where we were um, at, at the start of the conversation, which is, you know, taking the long term view and being willing to go back and look at a grant that you put in 25 years ago and tease out some of the impacts that that's that that's had. Yeah. And and building on that, another thing that I wanted to, to ask you about, which I, I think I can make seamlessly fit, is is uh, as well as applying that kind of mindset to your grant making, um, there's also quite a lot of focus now in the, the foundation world to how foundations use their wider assets, particularly their investments um, along the same lines and sort of thinking about um, you know, getting away from that mindset of, of kind of just investing in a few, in a purely for profit way, and then taking the proceeds of that and and distributing it through grants to one where you're seeing all of those assets as part of the same connected mission. What's what's your sort of take on that push to to get foundations to think in that way? 
Well, I think the discussions and debates are welcome. And, and I guess it kind of cuts in at least two different directions, doesn't it? I mean, the first is to, to, to think about forms of social investment, you know, how you can lever at least a proportion of your funds uh, to, to, to do something that's positive as well as being a type of investment. And I guess uh, endowed charities like Esme Fairburn have been market leaders, not just in the UK, but I would argue internationally as well in that space. And then the second area, which I think is probably going to come under greater scrutiny in the next few years, um, is this question of actually whether you're investing in areas that are in some ways in contradiction to your charitable objectives. You know, if you're a funder like Wolfson, funding quite a lot of biomedical research, should you be directly funding tobacco companies? Well, it would seem that there would be a complete kind of mishmash. And I'm sure, I mean, we talked a bit about scrutiny. I'm sure there is going to be even greater scrutiny um, on foundations investments over the next uh, the next few years. And again, I you know I don't necessarily think that that's that that's a bad thing. No, and I think um, that question of you know increased scrutiny on the way in which money is made and the impact that that then has on the legitimacy of efforts to to do good through giving it away is absolutely you know a trend we're going to see more of. Which which brings me on to a another question I wanted to ask you, which is probably less with your Wilson hat on and more with the sort of general philanthropy watcher hat. But there's um, quite a big you know controversy brewing at the moment about the the Sackler family who obviously you know very big philanthropic donors to arts and culture and, and other areas but have um, come in for a lot of criticism in the US for their role um, in the um, the opioid scandal uh, over there and quite a few institutions in the last week or two have announced that they will uh, either return money or no longer accept uh, money linked to the Sacklers and it raises this question again of whether institutions in receipt of philanthropic money have some sort of responsibility to you know to take an ethical stance on how that money was made um what's what's your take on that because it's you know it seems like a very thorny issue yeah i think you're right to describe it as as thorny and it, it it seems to me that there are there are two slightly separate issues the first is the the ethics fundamental ethics and the extent to which um taking funding from a particular source might undermine your mission simply on the grounds of a mismatch of of ethics. And secondly, then there's the reputational issue in a sense that, that, you know, the scrutiny that you're going to come under. Um, And, you know, it's it's no coincidence that, um, you know, the, the, the Tate and National Portrait Gallery have both made statements that they're, that they're not going to take Sackler money. And indeed, you know, as I understand it, the foundation itself has suspended its operations this week. Uh, it comes on the back of a media campaign, particularly through the Evening Standard, really drawing attention um, to the issue. So, I mean, I think I, I, I feel I feel sorry, actually, for organisations, uh, fundraising organisations that, um, are having to navigate it because the issue is undoubtedly very thorny. It's not a new issue, of course. Um, but what I think is true in 219 is that the view that by giving money away, you cleanse it and therefore it's acceptable for a charity or a cultural organization or a university to take money from any source. That view is dead in the water. Um, and, uh, Therefore, I expect that there will be more cases uh, like the Sackler case that come to kind of prominent attention and more difficult conversations. I also expect actually that um, the due diligence that organisations do or or reputable organisations do on major funders will become simply a standard part of, of, of the way in which the sector works. So, for example, I quite anticipate that the time will come when, before an organisation takes money from uh, an institution like the Wolfson Foundation, they will ask us to complete a, a, a form in much the same way as we ask them to complete a form, that it will just be part of due diligence and that will become an acceptable part of the way in which philanthropy works. 
Interesting. Yeah, that would be an uh, interesting shift in the sort of power dynamic uh, between the two. I'll be yeah, intrigued to see how that plays out. Um, listen, Paul, I'm, I'm aware I'm in danger of uh, taking up altogether too much of your time. Um, before, before we sign off, is there anything that you've got coming up or that you'd particularly like to kind of direct people's attention to? Just to say, it's been a fascinating conversation, uh, Rodri, and I think the conversation in itself shows just how much there is in terms of debates about philanthropy and foundations at the moment. Um, I still maintain that they're that they're a force for good and and just signposting people. We talked about the Wolfson History Prize. Uh, those listening to the podcast might be interested to know that on the 15th of April, we announce our shortlist uh, for this year. So if you're a history lover, um, then that's a date for your diary. Excellent. Well, listen, Paul, it's been absolutely great having you on the podcast. Um, and I may well uh, attempt to strong arm you into coming on in future because I think there's all there's plenty more we could talk about. Thank you. Thanks so much. Rory. It's been a great pleasure, genuinely. OK, then. Well, thanks very much again to Paul for coming on the podcast. It was great to have a chance to sit down and talk to him. He's certainly one of those people um, that I've kind of been aware of for quite a while and we've interacted on social media but it's really good to actually kind of at least put a, a voice to the to the name if if you know not be in the same place uh for now um and you know it touched on all of the kind of issues that listeners of the podcast will know i i love to talk about endlessly um i'll put some links in the show notes to various things that we discussed that are relevant um as ever if you were interested in what we were talking about and kind of would like to check out more thoughts and writing on philanthropy and civil society and the role of foundations and that kind of thing check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh follow me on twitter uh, at rodri underscore h underscore davis um drop me an email at givingthought at cafonline.org if you've got ideas for future topics we could cover or people like an interview on the podcast other than that just like subscribe share with all your friends give a nice review to this podcast on itunes and spotify which i'm sure helps uh, and other than that i will see you next time okay bye